I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1, the book of Acts and chapter 1. We're continuing our series on Bible study uh, methods uh, that we title, How to Study the Bible. Uh, As we talked about last time, 500,000 people per month Google that very thing, how to study your Bible, how to understand the Bible. Why would we want to understand the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures of God's self-revelation. He reveals Himself in the Scriptures. There are certain things that we can learn of God by looking at creation. Psalm 19 tells us that. The heavens are telling the glory of God and the expanse is declaring the work of His hands. And so there's a declaration that's happening as we just look around us. As we look at the world around us, as we look at creation, as we look at the, uh, a new baby, uh, you look at all these things and you, and you think there has to be a God. But there are some things that we can't learn about God just from creation. And so God has revealed himself to us. In some of the reading that I've been doing uh, for my PhD, one of the questions that came up was, is God hidden? And the, the answer they said is, yes, he is hidden. He is hidden because he is, he, there are things about him that we cannot know. As limited, finite beings, we can't know everything about the unlimited, infinite God. And so we need him to reveal those things to us. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16 about God who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable life, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And so he tells him that. He's in unapproachable light. He is hidden from us. And you think, how can we know him if he is hidden? If he is in unapproachable light, how can we approach him? And his word, he tells us how. And so we want to know the God of the universe. And the God of the universe wants us to know him. And he wants us to know him, and we're not God, so we can't know him infinitely, but we can know him as we are in Christ Jesus. It's the only way that we can know the Father. It's the only way that we can know the triune God is through Jesus, his Son. And so we have to understand that we have to receive Jesus if we want to understand his his deity, understand the, the God that is there. So when we receive Christ, we also, something else happens. We receive the Spirit of God. God so wants us to know Him that He reveals Himself in His Word. And many of us think, well, not only is God in unapproachable light, sometimes the Scripture are unapproachable. There's passages that I don't understand. And how do I understand them? Well, God gives us His Spirit. He gives it to every believer in Jesus Christ. We know that from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. That says, when we believed on the gospel, we are sealed in him by the spirit of promise who is given to us as a down payment. So we're freely given the spirit of God at that moment. And here's what Paul says about the spirit in regard to God's revelation. In 1 Corinthians 2, he says, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? That we may understand what God has freely given us. He wants us to understand. So not only do we have God's revelation, he's given us spirit to help us to understand his revelation so it's possible for us to understand. And in fact, in John 16, 13, Jesus says, but when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So we will understand the truth about who God is through 
His Word. And now not only has He given us His Word and given us His Spirit to help us to understand His Word, in, a, in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, we find that God gives us a craving to know Him. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, He has put eternity, put eternity in the hearts of men. As Augustine said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. So God has given us his word. He's given us his spirit to understand it. And he's given us a craving, a heart, a God-shaped hole in each and every one of us that's not satisfied with filling it with pleasures of this world or with material things of this world, with performance, with achievement. None of those things satisfy in the way that God satisfies. And only He, the one who has created eternity in our hearts, is the eternity that fits our need. And so God, in every conceivable way, wants us to know Him. And so he reveals himself in, to, in, in his word. And so that means that we've got to take time to understand what does his word say and how do we get at it? How do we dig and unearth the, the things that are there? There's diamonds in God's word. And it means that we have to mine for those diamonds. It means that we have to dig and have to work. Howard Hendricks, uh, uh, a professor of mine at Dallas Seminary who taught Bible study methods, says that the Bible does not re, or yield its truths to the lazy. And so we have to pursue it. That's why 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. But what are the right questions to ask? Like an iRobot, Dr. Lansing said to the detective, that detective is the right question. So what are the questions, right? These, we have three questions that we ask, and we looked at them last time. What does it say? What does it mean and how does it work? That's observation. Interpretation is what does it mean? That's the question of interpretation. And the question of application is how does it work? Not does it work, but how does it work? The scripture, scripture, the word of God works, but we don't always know how. And so we need to ask those three questions and we need to begin to answer them. And our tendency is to ask the second question first. What does it mean? And we got to go back and say, well, what does it say? And that will drive our noses back into the scriptures to see what the word of God actually says. Observation, interpretation, and application. So let's, let's see how we do. We're going to do a little pretest. I've got a picture for you here to do a little pretest. Cute picture, right? I've got a couple of questions for you. And answer by raising either one finger for yes or true, two fingers for no or false, okay? Mary and Joey, her son, are being silly in the kitchen. One for true, two for not true. Got a lot of ones there. All right. How do you know that's Mary? How do you know it's Joey? How do you know it's her son? I mean, it could be her nephew, right? Could be a cousin of hers. Could be, you know, something else. Uh, so uh, uh, you don't know. Uh, second question. You see the salad in front of them? Uh, the woman and the child made the salad and are now being silly in the kitchen. One for true, 
two for false. Let me see. Give me your answers now. I see a lot more twos. You don't trust me. Um, one is, if they made that salad, look at the boy's apron. Would it be that clean? I don't think so. So somebody else made the salad, apparently, and they're being silly in the kitchen. I could say, the woman and the boy are smiling. One true, two for false. One, they're both smiling. The woman is wearing the blue blouse. True or false? There's things that you can say that you directly say. I can say there are two people in the room. One for true, two for false. Let me see your fingers. Oh, I see more. I see ones and twos. You can't see the whole room. Who took the picture? Just asking, right? I know some of you are going to say, oh, well, they had it set on automatic. Right, okay, whatever. So, we ask the same questions of the Scriptures. We look at some passages of Scripture. Uh, here's one. Give me one for true, two for false. Money is the root of all evil. One for true, two for false. Let me see those fingers now. You know what the passage in Scripture says? For the love of money. Not money. Money's not evil. If it is evil, you need to get rid of it, right? And if you want to pass it this way, I'm good with that. <laughs> the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. So not every evil is caused by money, although many may be. There are other evils out there that have nothing to do with money. And so to say money is the root of all evil would lead you in a wrong direction if you think that's what the Word of God says. Another one. Here's another verse. All things work together for good. One for true, two for false. I see more twos. Y'all are distrusting me more and more, right? All things work together for good for who? To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So you can't just say to everyone, oh, all things work together for good. If they're a believer in Christ, we know that we have a good and loving Heavenly Father, and He gives good gifts to His children. And as His children, those who have believed on Jesus, that's what gives us the right to be called children of God. God does and takes hard situations and can use them for good in this world, even though it may not be a good thing to begin with. Okay? Uh, I know the plans that I have for you applies to our life, right? One for true, two for false. I see some twos. It's a great verse. If you have it on your house, don't take it down right away. It's okay. But it, doesn't, it isn't a promise to you and me. It's a promise to Israel. And so all of a sudden, you know, okay, it's, is that a truthful thing about God? What does it tell me about my God? He makes promises and he keeps them just like he did to Israel. I have a promise-keeping God. You look at that passage every time you can know, I have a promise-keeping God. I have a God that when he works in my life, he continues it and he perfects it until the day of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1.6 tells me. And so I know that we have a God and I can learn things about him from even passages that aren't directly related to me. Okay? One last one. God moves in mysterious ways is in the Bible. True or False. I see, everybody's, let me get your fingers up. I see some ones, I see some twos. It's not in the Bible. It's written by a guy named William Cooper, 
that's the way you pronounce it. His name looks like Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, pronounced Cooper. In 1773, as a poem became a hymn. And so... When we understand God's word, we want to be accurate about it. We want to be those who, as Scripture tells us, workmen not ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. It means the, 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 the proof is in the details. So let's pay attention to some details. Let's go to Acts 1.8. And let's apply some of our newfound knowledge to the book of Acts. Acts 1.8 is a, a, a great verse. I love that verse. In fact, my first assignment when I was a first-year student at Dallas Seminary in Howard Hendricks' Bible Study Methods class was, I want you to look at Acts 1-8 and get 25 observations from Acts 1-8. I was thinking, I don't think there are 25 things that I can see from Acts 1-8. And so I looked at it, and let's see, there's 33 words in it, and I, you know, all these different things, um, and I sweated, but I came up with 25 observations. Second assignment, 25 more. Third observation, or third assignment, 25 more. Over the course of 50 or 60 years uh, of teaching the class and of keeping a record of all the unique observations from uh, that verse, Howard Hendricks said that his students had found over 600 unique observations from Acts 1-8. And it shows you the depth of God's Word that many times we're not even scratching the surface when we're looking at a passage and say, oh, this is what it says. This is what it means. And so we need to understand it. So let's start right at the very beginning. In fact, let's read the verse together. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. First word in a verse. But a word that's a contrast with something else. It's contrasting what he's getting ready to say with what he's not saying. He's saying, don't, not this, but this. So what is he saying not? He's saying, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. And you think, well, why does he say that? Because they've asked a question in verse 6. So back up another verse. So when they had met together, who is the they? You back up to verse 2, and it says, to the apostles he had chosen... He appeared to them over a period of 40 days. So when they met together, so it's talking about the 11. Uh, obviously, Judas was no longer with them. He had hanged himself because uh, uh, of his um, uh, choice uh, away from God. It says, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's the burning thought on their heart. Jesus died for their sins. He rose from the grave. They're thinking the kingdom is coming and we're going to reign with Christ, right? They were all excited, asking this question, is now the time? Is today the day? What it shows is that they didn't understand Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, it said the Messiah would be cut off and the holy city destroyed. That happened in 70 A.D. And so as they're asking this question, Jesus would have known less than 40 years later, the city, the very city they were in would be destroyed by the Romans. He doesn't say that to them. He doesn't remind them of Daniel 9. This is a joyous occasion, right? And so he says, 
It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. Don't focus on that. And you think, but yeah, but the book, the last book in the Scriptures, book of Revelation, reveals those things to us, and you certainly need the Holy Spirit to understand them, right? And so you look at that, that book and you think, well, what's the purpose of that book then if that's not supposed to be our focus? So I think there's one thing that we're supposed to know from the book of Revelation. Huge shouts at us. God wins. Right? God wins. Why is that important? Because we're not living in a world of dualism like the Manichaeans later came along and said that there's a God uh, that's good and a God that's evil and they're fighting it out and we don't know who's going to win. Maybe evil wins, maybe good wins. You see that in the yin-yang symbol where it has the part dark with a little light in it and a part light with a little dark in it and it's kind of this dualistic worldview. God's saying that's not how it is. The victory's already been determined. Good wins. God wins. So that gives us hope. And so that's not his focus at this moment, though. He said, it's not for you to know. Don't focus on this. That's not supposed to be our focus. Where is our focus supposed to be? But you. But you. You, the 11 disciples. So how does that apply to you and me? In Matthew 28, 19 and 20, you remember what Jesus told his disciples? He says, make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. This is one of the things that he's commanded them. This is one of the things that he taught them. He wants us to know this. But you, referring specifically to the, to the apostles in that moment, but because of them teaching us Christ's commands, also to us, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, he had just promised that. He promised that, in, in fact, if you go back one more verse into verse 5, it says, Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for the gift my Father promised. Remember that Jesus said, when I go, I will send another helper, another comforter to you. My Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There's confusion about this baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is when, if you look at verse 8, he defines it for it. For us, when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. The Holy Spirit coming on you, defined in the context of this passage, defined by the Scriptures. Which means that I'm baptized in the Spirit at the moment I receive Christ. And you think, well, wait a minute. I remember in the Gospels, Jesus kind of breathed the Spirit on them, right? If you remember, in the Old Testament, nobody got the Spirit permanently, only temporarily the church hadn't started yet, and so they didn't get the Spirit permanently, only sufficient to get them through Passover week. And so now Jesus is saying, you're going to get the Spirit permanently. He's going to come upon you. And I want you to go back to Jerusalem. So where are they? If he wants them to go to Jerusalem, where are they? It says, do not leave Jerusalem. But if you look at verse 12, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem. So where were they? From the hill called the Mount of Olives. 
Jerusalem, a very shallow valley, which was deeper back in biblical times, Mount of Olives. Right next to it. A Sabbath day's journey, we're told in the text. So a very short distance between Jerusalem and Mount of Olives. They're on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah tells us the Mount of Olives where Jesus ascended. And in fact, he says here in this passage, the angels tell him what? It says, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Verse 11. This same Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. In the same way, Zechariah tells us, he'll touch his foot on the Mount of Olives and it'll be split in half. He's on the place of his return. He's on the place where he's leaving that he's coming back. And so you, you realize they, they walk back to Jerusalem. They head back that way to be where he told them they needed to go. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. How long were they supposed to wait? They had already gone 40 days after his death. And we know that. Because of verse 3, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And so he was speaking to them over a period of 40 days. I can't imagine what he did to prove to them that he was alive for 40 days. I would love to have been a fly on the wall that day or those days. It wasn't an hallucination they were having because it didn't just happen one time. It was 40 days that Jesus appeared to them. And so it was many convincing proofs. We don't have eyewitnesses who just saw a glimpse and they thought, oh, what, did, what was that? Did I see what I thought I saw? No, I mean, he was there. He was explaining to them what the kingdom of God was like. In Acts chapter 2, we get the idea of how long they had to wait in Jerusalem. Because in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes. It says, when the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost meaning 50. It was a celebration 50 days after Passover. So we know that 40 days, convincing proofs. They go back to Jerusalem, they wait 10 days. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them. What did they talk about during those 10 days? What did they do? We know we have about half a chapter in the book of Acts that tells us a little bit of what they did. They got together. They were praying together. We're given their names, the list of those, right there in that passage. Who they are. Not just 11 apostles, but they, we know exactly who they were. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They were all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. They were all there. It was a larger gathering than just the 11. And you think, but where did, where did Luke get all of this? Because Luke wasn't there. Notice Luke's name's not listed here. And Luke wrote this thing. So how did he find out? Well, if you look at his other book, the gospel that he wrote, the gospel of uh, Luke starts and tells us how he found out things and places where he was not. It says, many have undertaken, this is 1-1 of, uh, of Luke, 
to draw an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I have myself, myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So he interviewed them. He interviewed eyewitnesses. If he says from the beginning, he interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. I think that's why he has Mary's song in here. I think that's why he's included uh, the, the visit to Elizabeth and the birth of Christ. He interviewed Mary and said, what happened? Tell me. And he wrote it down. It seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Was that a, a guy? A person's name, Theophilus? The word theos means God and phileo means lover of God or love, uh, one who loves. One who loves God so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught as it's written to us, those who love God. Or is it written to an individual? He says at the beginning of the book of Acts, in my former book, Theophilus. So we know that was the same author. The one who wrote Luke wrote Acts. He says, I wrote all about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken into heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostle he had chosen, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs. And so that's the one who, who writes to us. And if you'll notice in this book, the book of Acts, there are some times that it says they went to such and such a city. And there are some times where he says, we went to such and such a city. In Acts 16, you see the pronoun we, a very small little change, a subtle change. But you know, Luke is on that trip. The author of this book, he was on that trip. In Acts chapter uh, 20 uh, uh, and chapters 20 and 21, we see, he says, and we, all throughout those chapters, in 27, 1 to 28, 1, we see again, we. And so we know I, that Luke, the author, was on those trips. There were other trips that he found out by interview and by asking. So he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Is that a power that we also have? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul prays that we would understand the power that has been given us. In Ephesians 1, he says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is, and he talks about hope of your calling, the inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And what is that power? It's the Spirit of God. It's the, it's the power that he talked about earlier in that same chapter in, cha in verses 13 and 14 and now in 18 through 20 he's praying a prayer I pray that we will know the power that's given us in the spirit of God so that we can understand his word and so that we can live it out it says but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses you will be not notice Go and witness. Why doesn't he say, okay, go and witness. Come on, go, witness. He doesn't say that. He says, you will be passive, not active. You will be my witnesses. It's because God makes us his witnesses. I can't make myself his witness. I didn't 
bring salvation on myself. God did that. So when I tell my story about coming to Christ, I wasn't pursuing God. I went to a secular university pursuing my own way, and God grabbed me. My testimony is about God and what He did in my life, not about how I did all these great things and that I found God. I didn't find anything. I wasn't even looking. God found me. He drew me to himself. It was a work of God, not a work of Greg, to bring myself. I became his witness, and I still am his witness, either for good or bad. I'm either a good witness or a bad witness, but I'm a witness. Because people look at my life and go, you're a Christian? Really? I thought it was going to be better than this, right? (laughs) I'm still a fallen, sinful person saved by the grace of God. Anybody who comes to Christ is still a hypocrite. Anybody who comes to Christ still has problems in their life, and that sanctification process is a process that we grow more and more to become like our Savior. But it's not instantaneous. It's not automatic. And so God works, and I am His witness And I want to grow in that. I want to grow in the kind of witness that I am. God wants us to be his witnesses. Where? You see, there's a lot of questions that we need to ask when we look at these texts. There are six questions besides the three that I gave you for observation. I encourage you to learn these six. We've already used some of them. Who, what, when, where, why, and how. Every time you open the scriptures, just write those questions down and answer them. Who's talking? Who's he talking to? What are they doing? What's happening? Why did he say this after he said that? You begin to ask those kinds of questions, and it drives you into the text, and it helps you to answer the question, what does the text say? And what you'll find is your heart at some point in the process, is on fire. Because God begins to reveal himself to you in a way that's incredible. And so we begin to ask those questions and we look at those. And so we look at uh, the very things that we've looked at. Who's speaking? Jesus. Who's he speaking to? The, The 11. What's he saying to them? Don't worry about this. Worry about that. When is he saying it? He's saying it right before he ascends into heaven. So these are his last words. A person's last words are usually important words. These are his last words. These are the last things that he wants them to know. And he says, don't focus on this. This These are your marching orders, church. These are your marching orders, individuals. It's important to us. Our church is built on that. That is one of the things that Mansfield Bible Church cares about deeply, that we care about the things God cares about, and we are his witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jerusalem. Now, where were they? They're on the Mount of Olives. We know that from verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives. So, they're on the Mount of Olives, He commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem. So they went back to Jerusalem, waited 10 days. Holy Spirit comes on them. They began to speak, and people understood in their own language. 
And 3,000 came to Christ. They were his witnesses. They spoke out for him. It involves more than just life. It involves speaking. Jerusalem is a city. It's where they were. So the place they started is where they were. Where do we start where we are? Mansfield. So what is Judea and Samaria? If we look at a map of the land of Israel, we see that Judea was the area around Jerusalem. So if Mansfield has the area around it, it would be Texas. And then Samaria, the the land to the north of them, I guess Oklahoma. (laughs) So when you think about the Samaritans, what kind of people were they? Well, they were despised by Israel. Why? They were despised by the area of Judea and Jerusalem. Why did they despise them? Because they were different. You see, a long time before that, in 722, B.C. So 700 years before, that whole area that had been the, the, the um, country of Israel, they had a separation after Solomon's uh, death, and Solomon's son wanted to tax them just like Solomon had done, and they said, we are not having it. Split north and south, Israel and Judea. In 722, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom of Israel and spread them throughout their whole kingdom, throughout the Assyrian kingdom. And they transplanted people from other parts of their kingdom into this area. And so now that area north of them was no longer their blood relatives. They were foreigners who spoke a different language and worshiped different gods. And so when you look at this, there was a missiologist, a guy, a missions guy named Dr. Winter, Ralph Winter, he came up with this scheme of evangelism, and he called it E0, E1, E2, and E3. E0 was when you're witnessing to someone, evangelizing someone uh, that is uh, in your own culture, that's in fact in Christian homes, and maybe they haven't come to Christ yet. Then E1 are those people that, that are a little bit further removed. They're outside the church, but they still live in the community around you. And then E2 are those who may live in your culture, but further removed. And then E3 evangelism is people who have a different culture, different language, different groups. And you realize from the very beginning, Jesus told us that's what we need to do. We need to go beyond ourselves. As a church, it's one of the things that we've been committed to. We've uh, been committed to going to our Jerusalem, Mansfield, and reaching beyond it. It's why we have these two outreach Sundays where we go into the community and serve our community. And we are His witnesses. And as we live out the Christian life before our community and have opportunity to speak about it, we're able to speak and have an impact. I'm on the board of the Mansfield Mission Center, and I I joined the board there because of what I love about what they do, and I have opportunity to have influence there. And Greg Lingle is on the board of Common Ground, and, and, and we want to reach out into our community. We do Feed the Children where we reach the schools on either side of us. And so we want to reach our Jerusalem, Mansfield, but we want to reach beyond. We have our students who are going to Harlingen this week, this coming week. 
and they're going to be in that larger area, the Judea area, where they're beginning to reach uh, those who are in Harlingen and, 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 and touch the lives of those there. And then some of us next week, spring break, are going to Ecuador, and we're going to be going different culture, different language among the Quechua peoples and do some pastor's conferences and build a church and, and um, do some children's ministry. Acts 1-8, our marching orders. It's for all of us. It's what we're committed to. It's what we're committed to as a church. It's what I want to encourage you to be committed to as an individual. I know this week I had the opportunity to talk a little bit with uh, uh, one of my doctors, and, and I, was, uh, uh, I don't know his background. I don't know where he's from, but I had a chance to just share with him what I was reading. Uh, you know, I, as a Ph.D. student, I'm reading all the time, and so I'm sitting there in the exam uh, nation room reading, you know, and he goes, what you reading when he walks in? Well, I'm reading, and I showed him what I was reading. I began to talk with him and share with him a little bit of what I was learning. And, and he engaged in that dialogue a little bit and said, well, you know, some of the things, and he talked about some of the things that he had experienced, and one of the questions is, what is truth? And then he said, okay, well, now we need to do the, you know, uh, what we're here for, and I was just like, wow, I have a great opportunity for the next time. Remember when you said, what is truth? You know, and so I don't know where that goes, and I don't have a particular agenda. Uh, I'm not trying to push my way through that. I'm just Letting the Lord lead that, those conversations and see where it goes. Because Christ has called us all. He originally told this to the 11 disciples, but all of us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Apostle Paul took it serious. And as they, uh, we find out uh, in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, notice 1.8, and now 8-1, what happens is persecution breaks out because they're just kind of loving Jerusalem, you know? And God's saying, I want you to go beyond Jerusalem. I called you to go to Judea, Samaria, and that hasn't happened. And so in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, he says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Exactly what he told him to do in Acts 1.8 begins to happen in Acts 8.1. And in fact, when you look at a map of what Paul did in the book of Acts, he began to go beyond Judea and Samaria. In fact, you see this map, and you don't have to follow every little line, but these are the places that kept his travel agent busy. And he went to these different places and began to reach what is today Turkey and Greece and even his final trip all the way to Rome itself. And so you see the beginnings of the church and you see that they took this seriously and they went out at great sacrifice to themselves. And what you realize when you begin to look at Acts 1.8, it's the outline for the whole book of Acts. In Acts 1.8, he says uh, through chapter uh, uh, 7, Jerusalem. Go ahead and put that outline up there, if you will. And then chapters 13 to, uh, uh, oh yeah, 8 through 12. Yeah, I, I got ahead of myself. 1 through 7, Jerusalem. 8 through 12, Judea and Samaria. And then 13 to 25, remotest part of the earth. What is the most majority of the book spent on, remotest part of the earth? 
reaching beyond. When you read the book of Acts, when you get to 28, it just kind of stops. You go, wait a minute, what happened to Paul? What happened to Peter? Why did he just stop? And you realize because the story's still being written. We're in Acts 29 right now. A whole church movement began calling themselves the Acts 29 movement. But we're all in Acts 29. We're continuing the story, doing what Jesus Christ has called us to do. To reach beyond ourselves. To not make our Christianity just about our holy huddle of us together. But that we go out and beyond. Lord, we come to you today. And we pray and thank you that you have given us our marching orders. That you have told us what it is that you desire for us to do. I pray that we would do it with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our might. That we will reach Mansfield and then Texas, the United States, and the remotest part of the earth. Use us, Lord Jesus. Grow us. Give us courage. Give us focus. That we don't focus on the things that are just what ifs. But that we focus on what you have said. May we be your witnesses, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.